Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Podcast like it. Just podcast like it. Podcast like it's 1999. Podcast like it. You want a podcast like it? Podcast like it's 1999. Hello and welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999, the podcast where we talk about the comic strips of 1999 here from atop a doghouse. In 2019, probably. Yeah, probably. Yes. Oh, we don't know when this will drop, no, this but it's... this will drop in 2019. Oh, this is definitely yeah, 2019. Because yeah. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Nybart. And I'm Felisco. And with us today to talk about Peanuts, is Peanuts, the comic strip, is Jeff Greenstein. <laughs> not the nut. Not the nut, not the legume, is Jeff <laughs> Greenstein. He's a writer, producer, director. Um, Best known for Friends, Will, Will and Grace, Desperate Housewives. Yeah, small shows that no one's ever heard of. There are a lot more. Yeah. Um, so. He's a man. And you're directing episodes currently of The Neighborhood. The Neighborhood. Correct? That's right. There you go. Nice. Yeah. A man with a Wikipedia page. You bet. Can't Wikipedia say that about everyone. <laughs> Only person at this table with one of those. Well, Ernie has one. Ernie has a stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, I'm just going to ask the question right out of the gate. Go for it. Why do you love peanuts? Oh my God. It changed my life. Well, how did it change your life? I mean, as when did you start reading it, I guess, uh, as a very young child growing up in the Atlanta suburbs, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think my, my aunt, who's a few years older than me, gave me my first little compilation of peanuts comic strips. I think I was aware of it from that more mm-hmm. than like the Sunday funnies, right? And, uh, the first one that I own, which had a, has a purple cover is called the unsinkable Charlie Brown. And it's just a collection of comic strips from the sixties. And I think I was probably, oh my God, six, seven, eight years old when I started reading it. And it just, I would endlessly read and reread the strips. There were sequences and jokes and stories that would unfold over a series of strips. And 
I was obsessive about it and I managed to like collect all of the little compilations and then the compilations of compilations that have come out in recent years. But it was probably, uh, you know, along with Woody Allen and Tom Lehrer, who became important to me much later in my life, the single most profound comedic influence on me um, as a human being and as a writer. (laughs) I think it's, I mean, so there's something obviously very classical about the way it's structured, the way that the jokes are done. It's, it's very sort of, uh, it's very comforting, I guess, on some level there's, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not, uh, edgy necessarily but it's got some edge to it i don't know if i agree that it's like lucy's an asshole (laughs) assholes aren't edgy that's not the edge (laughs) it's interesting see this is very interesting phil Mm -hmm. i hear you talk about it because Uh i think a lot of people who think about charlie brown and peanuts cartoons and snoopy think of it as kind of comfort food right that it's you know it's very it's kind of non-threatening and the strip i think is it wore into the 80s and 90s and then Mm -hmm. you know up to the era that we're talking about, up to 1999, became less and less edgy. Okay, sure. so that I think a lot of people, particularly young people who are younger than me, uh, and who associate the strip also with like the Christmas special and, and Great Pumpkin special, yeah. and stuff, these it feels like it's for kids. Yeah. Um, but the world of Peanuts is unimaginably bleak. And this is true. And for a mainstream piece of entertainment, mm-hmm. it talks about loneliness and sadness and the hatred and cruelty among children, depression, alienation in a way that I think no other mainstream work of art, particularly one aimed at like younger people and families and so forth, did at the time. And so, you know, I said to you off (laughs) mic just, you know, before we started recording that I'm slightly intimidated talking about a work of art of this importance and magnitude. Yes. Um, yeah. Not just because it's so titanically important to me, but because I think that Charles Schultz is one of the most important figures in 20th century popular culture, along with like the Beatles and Muhammad Ali and Elvis Presley. I think that like this object is incredibly important because of the world that it depicts. Well, I would, I just, just to be clear, I wasn't suggesting that there isn't a complexity to peanuts. I was merely saying that I think when you, when you think edgy, yeah, it's probably not the thing that comes to mind. That's not to say that there isn't uh, a depth to it because there's lots of that. And yeah. watch. So today I watched the two specials yeah. that we talked about, and uh, it, it is really sort of the the depression really hit me. Like Charlie Brown is a deeply depressed character. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and you probably would be too if your friends were constantly like shit talking yeah. you. But I do think that there's something very sort of deeply human about it and very genuine about it. Part of it, I think, at least for me, is uh, that there were real kids that did the voices. Oh, yeah. Which was, that was the first time that had ever been done. Very uncommon at the time. Um, And and some might argue today, probably not as, I mean, I think there's a lot of people that do voices of kids. It's not generally kids. Um, It just feels so real. They sound like, they sound like real kids. And And it's just, yeah, it's a very grounded, very beautiful oddly surreal sometimes as well. The imagination of these sort of flights of fancy that yeah. these kids go on. It's, it's really, it's very powerful. I wasn't, I certainly wasn't suggesting that it isn't. Um, but, um, 
for some context for our for our listeners, um, Peanuts is among the most popular and influential in the history of comic strips, with seventeen thousand eight hundred ninety seven strips published in all, making it arguably the longest story ever told by one mm. human being. Yeah, at its peak in the mid to late nineteen sixties, Peanuts ran over two uh, two thousand six hundred newspapers with a readership of around three hundred fifty five million in seventy five countries, translated into twenty one languages. Uh, helped to cement the four panel gag strip as the standard in the United States, and together with its merchandise earned. And uh, Charles Schultz more than a billion dollars. Yeah. It's staggering. So, yeah, it is staggering. It is staggering. Nothing of this magnitude, I think, has ever gotten here Yeah, without being one incredibly, um, in- incredibly relatable across culture, yeah. but two, edgy. No offense. Yeah. If you think about, look, all right, so, so Jeff made a point. I think that they're the most influential, uh, Pop culture people, pop culture uh, figures. Uh, the other ones you ma- named were the Beatles. Very edgy. Yeah. It, like, it, like they, like they seem like comfort food, right? But like, I don't know. Groundbreaking. I listen, yeah. I listen to the Beatles station on Sirius, and I hear uh, Helter Skelter, and I hear you know when they look up the number, and I hear things that like you, you they did for the first time. Sure. Um, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Very edgy. Very edgy. The <laughs> edgiest, right? But but beloved yeah. throughout the world. The Beatles beloved throughout the world. Who was the other one you said? Uh, I don't know. I don't Elvis. 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 Yeah. <laughs> edgy too. Elvis was, sure. you know. The, Dangerous. I just, I worked on a show. Pushing the boundaries for sure. Yeah. yeah. He's still black culture, but whatever. Like, he just. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> it's edgy. It is. And that, that is kind of, that is kind of the point. And yeah. Just to, to some extent. And then if you, you know, even, it's so funny. I work with someone, um, I work with someone from Uganda and she said, that um, not that he's that edgy or cool, but like apparently Ludacris is enormously popular in Uganda. And ah, sure, it's interesting the way uh, American hip hop stars transcend culture like that. Edgy people. So I don't think that um, you know, outside of like your Mickey Mouse, who is its own little thing, I don't think it's possible to get this big without constantly keeping the audience on their heels a little bit. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. And I, I like the way in which you kind of unpack those examples because you're right. In each way, all of those figures are in some way transgressive, dangerous, mm-hmm. uh, might at the time were very upsetting to parents. You can go on with that. You go yeah. Madonna, yeah. Prince, yeah. and Michael Jackson. Um, it's subversive. This I, is definitely a subversive I comment. think there is a slightly subversive quality to the strip and the way in which these precocious children talk to one another um, – they are clearly, you know, pint-sized adults in a yeah, lot of ways sure. who are talking about adult concerns. Sure. But just to pick a random example, mm-hmm. the first Peanuts strip ran in 1950, right? Sure. And it depicts uh, a bunch of kids or see Charlie Brown mm-hmm. approaching. Do you know this? I don't. Yeah, I do. The very first strip, they see Charlie Brown approaching. And one of them says, here comes Charlie Brown. And then the second panel says, good old Charlie Brown. And then another kid says, Good old Charlie Brown. And then the next kid says, how I hate him. <laughs> this is what, like, of course, Charlie Brown's depressed. Wait, except, except I don't, I don't mean to correct you on your own. Yes, go ahead. Land. It's not three different kids. It's oh, it's all the same kid, kid talking about how great Charlie Brown is until after he's <laughs> gone. Yeah. And then behind his back, he they goes, how I hate how him. How I hate him. Now, that there you that could not is childhood yeah <laughs> that is adulthood you, you could not pick a humanity bet. Now, in a nutshell there is a lot of other wonderful whimsy and sure. fantasy yeah. in the strip 
you know, Snoopy, which we'll, who we'll talk about in a minute, is a transformative, elastic character who can be anything. And so Snoopy is almost, yes, (laughs) that's right. Sell you insurance. Um, Or Dolly Madison cupcakes or whatever. (laughs) Snoopy is a testament to the power of imagination. Absolutely. That's great. But the cruelty that Mm. these children inflict upon one another and the loneliness and alienation that particularly Charlie Brown feels, but all of them feel at times. That's to me like the central, you know, timbre of the whole strip. Well, unrequited love is a part of it too. No question. I'll go just to to stay on the notion of alienation because that's what I get from Charlie Brown every time I encounter a Charlie Brown cartoon uh, or a comic strip. The blah, 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 blah from the parents. Yeah. That's how I felt as a child <laughs> sure. when adults spoke. And I don't feel like everybody felt that yeah. way. My wife didn't feel that way. But, oh, my God, anytime an adult spoke, it was like authority, 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 doesn't know what I go through, doesn't know what my life is like, doesn't understand what's important, not only to be, like, in the world. Yeah. And that's how I felt. I really, like, I like pop culture about kids where the parents are either very minimal or non-existent. Yeah. Because love my parents, but like so much of my childhood was about me and my friends being together and figuring things out ourselves. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, all that's very true. I'm going to ask a stupid question Go. that perhaps you know the answer to. Why is it called peanuts? Oh, good question. This Don't is great. This. this is great. Okay. The, the, the kind of urtext of peanuts is a series of cartoons that Charles Schultz did that were called Lil Folks. L I apostrophe L. Okay. Okay. And when the script, and they didn't have, uh, there are characters in Lil Folks that are recognizably the prototypes of Mm -hmm. Snoopy and Charlie Brown and so forth, but we never hear their names. When the strip developed the cast of characters it ultimately had, and Schultz turned it over to a newspaper, right, to Mm -hmm. publish, it didn't really have a title. It was like either Lil Folks or it would maybe be called Charlie Brown or whatever. It was actually someone at the syndication company Uh that gave it the name Peanuts, which was sort of slang in the 50s for little kids. Mm -hmm. And Schultz maintained throughout his career how much he hated that, that title. And if he could ever have gone back and changed it, really? he would have. And that's why, though you see like the Peanuts gang or so forth, mm-hmm. all the specials and stuff are never a Peanuts. Charlie Brown Christmas. Mm-hmm. You know, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Yeah. But he never uses the name Peanuts because it really bugged him. I can see that. <laughs> I yeah. can see someone He's, else coming up said, with that name and being like, this feels yeah, this will work. This feels yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And he even said that it's an ugly word. It just doesn't feel good in your mouth. You know, like peanuts. You know, he just There's, never liked yeah, it. Something never to liked that. it. I mean, so he just, per, just anecdotally, I'm not even kidding. My kid who is allergic to peanuts won't watch it. Interesting. Yeah. I love it. Because, because that, of a nut allergy. Yeah, they won't watch it. They won't. I, well, the, you know, they had the 3D movie recently. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. And they wouldn't go see it. My, I mean, I have four kids, but, um, <laughs> the oldest, my, my oldest are twins as listeners of the podcast now. And, uh, my, my son is yeah. used to peanuts and my daughter is extremely like, protective of him yeah. when it comes to that. So t- together, they're just like, no, right, no, 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 no. Right. This is not this for is us. This is tempting fate. This is not for us. Like, <laughs> I'm like, it's not about peanuts, guys. They're like, no, 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 no. They're pro-peanut. We're anti-peanut. <laughs> we're, we, we will not I be in this as That's this, so this, great. That's so great. That's really funny. I um, So so Schultz is writes this this series until basically his almost his dying day. Yeah. 
So he basically yeah. writes it until the end of 99. The last one is published three days into 2000 in January 3rd. And then he dies six weeks later about that? February. Uh, yeah. My understanding is that he like locked up the last drawings toward the end of 99. Okay. He was okay. taken ill. He wrote a farewell strip basically okay. explaining that he wasn't in good enough health to publish Peanuts anymore. And he mm-hmm. had this strip kind of ready to go. What was and the last one? Do you remember? The last one is just – it's actually a personal message from Schultz. The last strip that was published right. is just a personal message from Schultz where he says um, – uh, it's a picture of Snoopy at his typewriter. Uh, and it's just a message saying that like, you know, I'm not going to be able to continue with the strip. It was a point of fr- pride for Schultz that no one ever drew it and no one ever lettered it besides him. So those 17,000 strips that you were talking about were all hand-lettered by Schultz at his drawing desk for 50 years. And so he explains in this very briefly, just in a couple of sentences, that he's not in a position to do the strip anymore, so he's going to be ending it. And he talks about his love for these characters, and that's it. It's really – so, I mean, again, I I did the the, – you know. A little bit of a deep dive as as I was yeah, doing yeah. this today and watching it and and the the specificity of it of the characters themselves you know just I was looking at sort of the the laundry list of characters and most of them appear in these two uh, these two TV specials obviously but um, I mean just stuff like. Does does Schroeder ever say anything? No, no, no. Schroeder talks all the time. Oh, he does. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Schroeder. Because there's something so beautiful about the fact that he doesn't. I don't think he says anything in either of those TV specials. I that's think he interesting. Just, just no, plays he the doesn't. Piano. I think he has a brief bit of byplay with Lucy when she's right. leaning on his yes, piano. Yes, 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 yeah. But no, he expresses himself primarily well, through music, and what's which that? I love. That's my boy, Schroeder. Yeah. Schroeder's yeah. the best. I, Schroeder's Schroeder and Pigpen are my she, favorites. Who, who's on his thing? Uh, Bach. Beethoven. Beethoven. Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> oh my God. Beethoven. 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 Sorry. Ludwig van. <laughs> right. Of course. Beethoven. Of course. Yes. Yeah, it's Beethoven. been a long day. Uh, I just love how he has. He has all the uh, all the piano, oh, the uh, pianos or the little pianos, all the Beethoven busts <laughs> in the closet, yeah. ready to go. Yeah, he's a great guy. He's great. I mean, he's I, the I catcher think- on the baseball team. He's yeah. got a romantic comedy relationship with Lucy. Who yeah, loves him. She's in love. She's with in him. love she, with him, but he. But he's not into not it. Really into he's it. not into it. And the girls are into the guys, and the guys are oblivious. It seems well, like. Well, you know, because Charlie Brown is into sister. Charlie Brown is into the little red haired girl. girl. Right, 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 right. Charlie's sister is into Linus. Yes, yes, yes. She calls him her sweet baboo. <laughs> and yes, Sally, Charlie Brown's little sister, who was born during the strip. Like, okay, she's born like in 1960 or something. Charlie right. Brown gets a little sister, and she grows up very quickly, very quickly, and starts talking. Appears and starts, like yeah. within moments, um, and has a fantastic personality. Mm-hmm. She's a terrible student, and she so makes forth. him write everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But uh, and then there's a weird, also a weird romantic comedy between Peppermint Patty mm-hmm. and Charlie Brown, mm-hmm. right? And they kind of like each other, but then there's also Peppermint Patty has a sidekick, Marcy, who sort of follows yeah, Peppermint okay. Patty okay. around. Peppermint Patty is basically holly hunter right yeah well she's kind of a lot of people sort of yeah she's kind of scrappy i know people th- i know people think she's like proto proto lesbian but like i don't think that's a lot of fun i think it's much more fun to think she's like a young holly hunter yeah you know just like out yeah. there. she's a bit of a tomboy a yeah. i think she's got a single parent i think they mm-hmm. say that at one point and she's from a different neighborhood this is part of the genius of how schultz <laughs> extended the world of the strip because he started off with the characters that we all know best right charlie brown linus snoopy lucy 
Um, and then at a certain point, these characters from another neighborhood started coming to visit and Charlie Brown's team would play them in baseball. And that's how we met Peppermint Patty and Marcy. Mm. And then I was re- looking at a strip earlier today where Peppermint Patty drafts a kid who's half Swedish, half Puerto Rican called Jose Peterson, who's uh-huh. an incredible hitter who, you know, and so he kind of becomes part of the world. And then there's also a kid named Five. Uh-huh. Whose family all have numbers for names, yeah. and they're from this other neighborhood. Five, four, three, two, and one, right? Yeah, I think f- just five, four, three, and two, actually. The father changed the last name to his zip code. Yes, that right? that's yeah. right. Look well, that. how well you know this. You know peanuts. Well, <laughs> you know peanuts better than you. I love you, that. The yeah. irony is. They wouldn't see the movie because I'm pretty sure it was called the Peanuts movie. It was. Yeah, it is. But we've watched all the specials. Okay, okay. okay. they're down with the character. They just yeah, don't yeah. know that. They okay. didn't know that that was Charlie I see. Brown. At the I time. see. But, and so we watched all the specials and like, I, I mean, Charlie Brown's great. Charlie Brown's great. I'm I not, relate to Charlie Brown. I mean, I relate. To Charlie well, Brown. this is the thing. Well, I mean, maybe do, we should right? start. 100%. So yeah, the thing is, I mean, you were talking, you were asking me earlier, like how I first made contact with this work of art, why it spoke to me, and so forth. Yes, the alienation and loneliness and cruelty that's depicted in the strip. I absolutely felt that as a kid. I was a strange, strange little boy. Have we talked about this? No. Okay. All right. I was Let's talk about it because we well we probably should because yeah. I think my connection yeah. to this has to do with being a strange absolutely little boy. does. So um, I was a very like I was very big. I'm six foot seven, right? So I was a big baby. And that meant that I was a big kid. And I also talked really young. And um, I don't know exactly why, but I was um, very articulate and had a big vocabulary and kind of manifested as a bit of a smarty when I was very small. Not so much anymore, but when I was little. Okay. And so <laughs> because of these reasons, my mother particularly thought it would be a good idea for me to skip kindergarten. And so I started first grade at four. Okay, so wow. I was the same size as all of my peers, right? Because I was a big kid. I was the same intellectual capacity as a lot of my peers. But emotionally, yeah. I was I like to say I was unprepared for everything that happened to me between the age of four and like 24. Because um, I was always behind the curve, right? And I didn't understand why children behaved the way they did. And I was never one of the gang. I didn't have the athletic abilities of those kids because – I'm eight and they're 10. Mm -hmm. I'm 11 and they're 13. So I always was picked last. And I was always the one who didn't know that you're supposed, not supposed to remind the teacher that she forgot to give you homework. Mm -hmm. You know, I was always the strange, brainy, like kid that was outside the circle. So, you know, Charlie Brown, the kid who was all, you know, who can never win, right? Whose team never scores a run. Yeah. The little red haired girl will never pay attention to him. You know, even like Linus, who is the most intellectual and kind of slightly pompous of the kids, yeah. often pays a price for being the most intellectual, right? Everyone in the strip to varying degrees is a little bit of a loser, except yeah. Snoopy. Except yeah. Snoopy. Everyone else is for, in some way, they don't fit in. Mm-hmm. Peppermint Patty's a tomboy. Lucy is, has anger issues. You know, Sally isn't very smart. You know, everyone is, a, you know, Schroeder only cares about music. So that I, so I dialed in as a kid very profoundly to this idea that this strip, strange though it was, did seem to depict a lot of essential truths about the world that I was moving through and the experiences I was having. In a, in a, in a palatable way, in a very accessible way. Like, 
again, I, I, I didn't mean to suggest that it's not edgy earlier, but there's just, it's more about how deceptively simple it seems. That's, yeah. That's, that's the thing that sort of gets you. That's what comic strips are. Sure. Yeah. Right? That's the history of comics mm-hmm. is, you know, essentially smart people cartoons. Yes. Uh, what, what I'm struck by listening to what you're saying, Jeff, is everybody in the comic strip is a bit of a outsider, loser, weirdo, yet – this comic strip is the most successful comic strip in the history of the world. I think we all think we're outsiders, winners, and losers, right? Like you have a you have a, a specific story. Yeah, I have a specific story. Phil has a specific story, and I think we all, in our own way, felt like even if you even if you kind of objectively were on the inside, the the, the moments in my head are moments where I was left out. Yeah. You know, the things that stick with me are moments where I was left out or excluded or ignored or she wouldn't, she wasn't into me or this didn't happen or I didn't get into this thing. All the moments. And I think that's what really speaks to people. So I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're the, the yeah. prom king. Like, right. The prom kings I know, the <laughs> high school quarterbacks I know also have these. Of issues. course. See, yeah. one of the things that was so Universal profound to me about going back to my high school reunion, uh, it was. I grew up in the Atlanta suburbs. I think I mentioned that, mm-hmm. um, and had gone first to Boston to go to college, and then moved out here. And so I hadn't, you know, I stayed retained. Was my it connect- was it a small school right outside of Boston? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, oh no, it was Tufts University. It wasn't that a brand. It wasn't a small school outside of Boston. I don't. Think, it's so funny. People say I went to school in New Haven. Really? Where'd you go? Um, <laughs> I did anyway. get one of our guests with that one. So it's right. very exciting. So yeah, I went to <laughs> Tufts University where Elaine Bennis went. Yeah, That's sure. where people know best. Okay, so anyway. <laughs> but I retained my connection to Atlanta at the same time as mm-hmm. I kind of actively created distance between myself and my Southern upbringing, which you can probably tell from my voice. Anyway, I'm <laughs> being overly verbal in getting to the, the punchline of this. So when I went to my reunion, I was gigantic in a way that people weren't prepared for. <laughs> and I, um, you know, I had made a bit of a success of myself mm-hmm. in TV, which also no one expected because I was the nerdy science kid. So the right. fact, anyway. How long ago was this? How long ago was my the reunion? reunion? Yeah. This was my 20th. So this was what, 10 years ago. Okay. Something like that. Anyway, I now felt confident enough to talk to people in the social strata that I would be too scared to right. talk to before, right? So I went and talked to the quarterback and talked to the homecoming queen and so forth. And they were all, as you were saying, Kenny, they were all shot through with the same insecurities. Yeah. Like even when you were in the popular kid group, you were always worried about like whether this or that guy or this or that girl didn't like you enough. Or maybe you had – I went to an Episcopalian private school from fourth to eighth grade. So there were uniforms, mm-hmm. okay? And so we had to wear Oxford cloth shirts and these kind of twill pants and so forth. The only um, the only area of your wardrobe that you had control over was your tennis shoes. Mm-hmm. There were echelons between the kids who could afford the blue-striped Adidas, which were leather, and the red-striped Adidas, which were vinyl. And if you had the blue-stripe, you were fucking cool. Can I say that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if you had the red-stripe, you were a loser. I had the red. I had the. I had the. I had the red striped Adidas. Everywhere there were echelons. Everywhere, so it's like you were saying. Everyone feels insecure and alienated and lonely, and is this and is the object of of cruelty from other kids. And then, of course, the 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 blue striped Adidas kids that just got them past that one little. Exactly. Right. It's just that one hump, and then there's something else. It's yes, being a kid and being being a kid in a system really is very. 
difficult. I yeah. see it every day with my kids. It's very hard always trying to fit in because I feel like that's all I ever wanted to do yeah. was yeah. just find a little puzzle piece or a little, you know, empty hole that I fit into and I could just kind of be ignored. Yeah. But like even it just, that just never seems to work. But I would also say too that, and, and this, this piggybacks on what you guys were talking about. One of the things that I think leads is part of the success of this strip is that it doesn't talk down to people. No, that's mm-hmm. right. It is. It's just, it's, and it's talking about big heady issues, big things, you know, religion, socioeconomic, any number of things, but it does it in a way that makes you feel embraced. Yeah. Like we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. And, and that's not just special, but that's like, that's the key to the whole thing. Yeah. And that's like the, the most successful things in culture for, for the most part are well, things that are embracing you. It's, it's skeptical, mm-hmm. but it's not cynical. It's not jaded. Yeah. And that's super important to oh, yeah. art. Yeah. You know, just like, I like, that's really a good observation. Oh, I like that. Thanks. You getting lots of gold stars today. Yeah. I haven't gotten any, but you know, whatever. <laughs> whatever. <laughs> you came in and you're like, this, you're like, it's simplistic. And I, I, I knew immediately. I'm like, this guy is, Jeff, Jeff walks in. He's literally wearing vans with all the pianist characters ever. He has <laughs> but not I was, devoted you, his you entire fit. what I was saying. I didn't say as anything. a negative thing. I said, I, I was quiet for the first five I just minutes. I said it wasn't edgy. Like, that was, oof. I'm like, oof. Whatever. <laughs> like, this is going to be, this is going to no, be. No, I, I, I really, honestly, I didn't mean any of it in, in a, in a belittling way. I I really did find it incredibly powerful and incredibly yeah. interesting. Uh, and I also don't think that, you know, maybe there's a negative connotation to the word simplicity, but I don't think there's anything wrong with something being simple and something oh, yeah. that, that is accessible and that people it's, understand. It's obviously simple. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah. Right. you know, but, Schultz talks about, if you go back and look at the earlier, the earliest strips, the strips sure. from the early fifties, he really makes an effort. There's more shading. Hmm. The characters have three dimensional heads. <laughs> you know, there's much more, you know, he takes a lot of time, like drawing buildings and so forth. And over time, the, sh- the, the lines become much more simple. You know, he used to talk about how difficult it was to draw Charlie Brown's head because it's a perfect circle, <laughs> you know, because that's all it is. The character right. doesn't even have hair. Yeah. You know, like over time, there was a, a reductiveness of just, you know, it's like there's that famous sequence of drawings that Picasso did of a mm-hmm. bull where by the end it is just a loop that is mm-hmm. still represent, you know, that still represents a bull. Yeah. And so over time he did kind of simplify and simplify. So I, I agree with you. There's nothing yeah. wrong with saying that there is a beautiful kind of simplicity to these yeah. strips, all, almost like a poetic quality. Well, um, I think there's something about, again, like – getting down to the essentials of something and knowing like what it means to tell this story and, and really kind of the meat and potatoes of something I think is great. Um, As I was watching the animated uh, um, movies today, it made me think about, and this is the exact opposite of, of peanuts, but South park. Oh yeah. Sure. It made me think about sort of the antithesis, the R rated version, but again, it's about kids. And I mean, there are, there are adults obviously in their universe, so it's, it's different, but there's something there's no sort one of responsible in the universe though. They, they're, they're, the DNA is very similar, yeah, which is really yeah, interesting. I like that. So I think there's something very sort of, the other the thing that they even made, look kind of the same. They kind of do. Yeah. Um, th- there's, there's more nuance to the animation that yeah. Schultz does or, or at least yeah. in those animated things, but they're both really crude, but, <laughs> but it's, re- it's same yeah. kind of reductive. Yeah. yeah. Because it puts the words forward. That's what that does. Totally. I, I think the other thing that hit me too, as I was watching them specifically, the, the, the Christmas one, I obviously thought about Wes Anderson. Sure. Oh um, my God. Of course. And, and, I, it's just not something that I ever put two and two together on, but there's 
so much of a sort of you can see so much of Peanuts in Wes Anderson's work. Well, he uses the music. And he uses, he uses the, yeah, the he Christmas uses the time music, is here, so and it's is, so evocative yeah. because you know that Christmas time is here is such a beautiful song, and he deploys it. Depiction of kids too. Yeah. I mean, the, the the young Tenenbaums and Royal Tenenbaums, and then uh, Moonrise Kingdom. Like his depiction of kids, sort of precocious, super smart yeah. kids that feel alienated, mm-hmm. that feel like they're on the fringes of society, um, and also just that um, the, the primary colors and just like all the sort of stuff that he does. I think is is really interesting. Um, I, I just it, it's not a connection that I made before. Yeah, but I'm sure it's a connection he would make. Oh, sure. I, yeah, uh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So wait, you let off by saying it's the biggest creative influence in your mm-hmm. life. Um, how? <laughs> I, 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 connect those dots for me because you your story is you came out here you started writing for what, yeah, how did how what, oh, tell us your, your story oh, how oh okay well and golly. then the ways in which it you know what's the quick way you? to do the origin no. story in a couple of sentences <laughs> we do we go we go, yeah, we we go very long I'm looking podcast. at the thing I'm just I'm aware okay no, um, I was a nerdy <laughs> science kid okay nerdy science kid what in kind spite of science? Um, computer programming okay I'm roughly the same generation as Gates and Jobs and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know how Malcolm Gladwell talks about how we're all born Gates, in like the same three months or something. Yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah, but Malcolm Gladwell talks about how like uh, Gates was lucky enough to have a mainframe mm-hmm. computer at his high school, so he was able to put in those ten thousand. I had the same thing. Mm-hmm. At my high school, I had a mainframe computer, and from the time I was like nine years old, I was completely obsessed with science, astronomy, mathematics. That was my whole bent. I loved writing, and I loved to laugh, and so forth, and I loved. Art and music and so forth, but but the center of my world was science. And so when I went off to Tufts University, it was in the <laughs> College of Engineering to study computer programming oh, really? and software design. And my set and er, it's so funny. We were talking about Beethoven a minute ago. I every you, <laughs> you were talking about Bach. I was talking about Beethoven. Um, uh, but uh, I didn't want to be a total like copterhead. So every semester I picked like one random course to take that was completely off the map. And first semester it was a course on Beethoven. Second semester was a course on Italian cinema. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I took that class. It changed my life. I was like, I want to be a filmmaker. And so I kind of flipped the script and I started taking filmmaking classes at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts and film study classes at Tufts. I graduated with a degree in filmmaking and choreography. We'll skip how that <laughs> happened. But anyway, so I moved out here to be a director. That's what I thought oh, I was really? going to okay. do. Yeah. And I had a job on an AFI film, which ended up getting pushed and pushed and then killed. So I was kind of stranded here. And of course, as you guys know, the thing you can always do is write. Mm-hmm. So I started writing. And then my friend, my college friend, Jeff Strauss, moved out about six months later. And we just, you know, my, this girl I was dating at the time was a placement agent at like a temp agency. Uh-huh. And she got him a job at ABC on the desk of the head of comedy. And so he, so we were writing really bad screenplays as scripts for like Roseanne and the wonder years and 30 something and moonlighting were crossing his desk. And we're like, wait a second, maybe this, you know, for starters, they're shorter. Um, so we started writing science. It's really good. Right. Um, so we started writing spec scripts for TV and mm-hmm. we eventually got staffed on Dream On. Nice. One of HBO's yeah, first, first shows. Yeah. And working with Brian Marta Kaufman. Ben ben? Yeah, Brian Benben. That's right. Yeah. Working with Marta Kaufman and David Crane, who oh, basically yeah. we became showrunners on Dream On and then they Martin and David took us with them to their next show, Friends. And then and so then that's my origin then it's story. Just, yeah, then the that's my the origin limit story. from that point. Yeah, but to go back to your 
question, okay, why was this so powerfully influential? It taught me the rhythms of comedy. Mm -hmm. And Schultz loves language. You can just tell how much he loves words. And as we were saying a minute ago, because the drawing style, it is beautiful, but is because it is so simple, it pushes the words forward. You know, there is a great quality to the visual comedy of Peanuts. But what I think I responded to were the gags. He just writes great jokes. And that, as you said, this in a lot of ways is the prototypical four-panel strip and the way in which he creates comedy through the rhythms of box to box to box, you know. And sometimes it'd be three frames of Charlie Brown standing in the rain, Mm -hmm. and then he says something in the fourth frame. So I was learning lessons about the rhythms of comedy at a very, very young age. So, there, so, so there's that. a precision to that yeah. too. The precision yeah. of four boxes to tell a story and just, and, and how few words you have yeah. is, is also just sort of the, it's, it's beautiful. Well, right. it's interesting. A person who spent a lot of, you spent most of your career in uh, multicam yeah. comedy, yeah. network comedy. Um, I've spent my career in not network comedy, right? Not even comedy, just like everywhere, but places yeah. where there are no, no like kind of constraints. And that, Actually sucks. I hate that. Mm. I I think the man cons- loves his rules. I do. Yeah, I, know. I, know. I don't mean that in a bad I love way. That. I, know, I, know, I, know I know you. I know you. <laughs> I know. I I I need the constraints. I live for the constraints. Uh, and I wonder, did that affect? Did did that inform the way you you know you have to fit everything in your three oh, acts? Yeah. And your, I mean, I your really jokes a page or however you do. I don't even know how multicam comedy is really. Well, to be you honest. know, it's interesting. We touched briefly on my background in engineering because I do feel that. This is going to sound achingly pretentious, but whatever. We're on a podcast. Um, <laughs> um, I think that that if I have a skill set as a storyteller, it's in constantly shuttling between the left brain and the right brain in terms of story design. So there is part of me that cares a lot. I'm going to get back to your question. I promise. No, this is that cares <laughs> a lot about kind of the armature of a story, and I would think of. I get these visual images in my head sometimes when breaking stories about weights and counterweights and like something here makes something else go up over there. And like, you know, thinking about the levers and pulleys of storytelling. And at the same time, there's part of me that just goes, does that feel right? Does that feel authentic? Is that the next thing she would do? What would I do in that circumstance? And so there is, as I said, like, as you said, like two, like Will and Grace, the most simple show imaginable. It's got only four regular characters. It's got an A story and a B story. Typically, that means six or seven scenes per show. You know the A story is going to kick off. Sometimes we kick off on the B. We know that we have to hit an act break, one act break. It was the most simple show imaginable, which shifted the entire balance to character. So what people don't really remember so much the great plot twist in a Will and Grace episode. You remember the joke mm-hmm. or the character moment or two characters crashing together. Some of the best joke writing yeah. I've, ever, I've ever heard or seen on television. I will say a, a polite thank you to that. <laughs> oh, really? like, I, but it was, yeah. it so, was a, so, so sharp yeah. and so on and, character. Yeah, and we'll see. And it's interesting because that gets to the other thing. So, yes, those strictures were really important and valuable in helping kind of enforce a, an attention to the things that made the show great, right? Mm-hmm. Which, as you said, character moments, jokes, so forth. Um, the other thing, obviously, just to roll this back to Peanuts for a minute, mm-hmm. the character work is unreal, like mm-hmm. the ways in which these characters are developed over time. It's interesting. Charlie Brown starts out in the strip as kind of a smart aleck. 
and he's a bit of a provocateur and he likes to like play pranks on people and and mess with people's heads and it changes radically and he becomes kind of the loser over time the loser with a heart of gold you know and lucy in a weird way starts as a bit of a like this she actually starts as a child like a little child like an infant in the strip the (laughs) early lucy episodes she doesn't talk she like plays with blocks and Charlie Brown is kind of her babysitter in a lot of ways. And then she grows up to be this rage character, you know. And so the character <laughs> development that happens, obviously, it was a 50-year enterprise telling the story of these characters. So th- I, I would argue this is as sophisticated character work as you would see in the most profound novel or movie mm-hmm. or series of totally. novels, series of movies. He spent so much time. And this takes me to the third thing, which is – the strip is incredibly weird. Like the things yeah. that people are obsessed with, just the fact that Schroeder is obsessed with Beethoven. Mm-hmm. Snoopy has these fantasies about being a World a War pilot. One flying ace <laughs> yeah. or, yeah. or a vulture yeah. or an astronaut or whatever. He has this incredibly vivid fantasy life. You know, Charlie Brown's obsessions, Lucy's obsessions, Linus quotes the Bible at length. Mm-hmm. You know, Schultz had to fight for that in the yeah, CBS no, special. I think, uh, I, yeah, you know? I'd like to talk about that in a bit. Yeah, too. so spirituality and so forth. There are things rolled into this strip that are incredibly idiosyncratic. And to yes. me, like, it's such a wonderful kind of dichotomy because here is a strip that is so massively popular and it is also so massively weird. It's extremely strange, the things that it talks about. Well, I think that the strangeness, um, again, comes from uh, – doesn't bump up against you because of the aesthetic, if yeah, that makes sense. that's right. Like, it's not visually strange. It's just sometimes there's flights of fancy or sometimes there's whimsy kind of mixed into it if it's it's Snoopy going to yeah. World War II, I believe. World is War I. World War I. Yeah. Uh, it's – that sort of stuff makes it not – like. It, doesn't push you away. It's yeah. not weird for the sake of being weird. Right. It it just it, it it's a commentary on something and it's done in a way that it, it feels of a piece aesthetically with everything else. So it yeah. doesn't feel jarring. It's also there's 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 something about Charlie Brown. It's not oppressive in his loserdom, if yeah. that makes sense. Like I'm not super into stuff about losers. <laughs> <laughs> real losers. Like right. real true like like Alexander, no good, horrible, very bad day. Yeah. Like, like real, like everything horrible. But not only that, just like, just like miserable people. Charlie Brown didn't ever strike me so much. I, like, this is going to sound weird. He's a loser because he loses. That's but right. He's not yes. a loser because yeah. he's a loser no, he's in not a colloquial a sense. Person. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's yes. like this colloquial term, like you're a loser. Yeah. That's one thing, but he loses all the time. That's the, that's the, the, yeah. the saddest Charlie Brown. But I always feel like even Lucy pulling it away, she's so deadpan about it. <laughs> oh my God. She loves him. Yeah. She loves him. It's like my daughter and my son. She's fucking with him all the time. She lives for this yeah. kid. Sure. She would, Fucking, she would, she would slay a dragon for this guy. I think Lucy would do the same. Well, it's it, to to that point, you know, when the Christmas tree situation happens at the end of the of the Christmas special, where everyone like shits on his tree and is yeah. like, "Your tree sucks, Charlie." And he's like, yeah. "Fuck you guys! I'm gonna take my tree. I'm happy with my tree. <laughs> yeah. My tree's great. It was great." When he Charlie didn't really was, say. Right. Fuck, he, didn't, he didn't say fuck you guys. <laughs> right. I, I, mean, I, I haven't seen it in a while. But it's, yeah, no. but I think that, and then they come around and they they make yeah. his tree beautiful, and it's and but but there is something very sort of. First of all, I love his tree. I think his tree is great. I also think. I think it's amazing that that Christmas special killed the the uh, aluminum tree market. That's right. Like because they shit all over 
those the trees, trees in yeah. it, and, and basically no like one bought them. Sideways with Merlot. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Exactly. Did the same thing Sideways <laughs> did to Merlot. You're yeah. right. <laughs> Never see an aluminum tree anymore, do you? Just, you don't. Uh, which I think is kind of great. But they do sell those Charlie Brown Christmas you trees. Bet. You can that's get right. those sort you can of get like the pathetic, the, the pathetic little, little one yeah, with I the one thing. It's called the Charlie Brown Christmas yeah, tree. Yeah, it's the best. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. But but to your point, like that doesn't like quote unquote, he loses because people shit on his tree, but he takes it to him. It's a win. Cause I got a yeah. tree that I love. And so he, I think there's and, something to that. You know, of course the, the, you know, the, the special is about finding the meaning of Christmas. And of course it is. what it, what ultimately happens in that moment is a moment of brotherhood. You know, yes. all the kids getting together and rallying around their friend and the tree becomes this beautiful thing. Metaphor because, for all this yeah, yeah. It's so great. <laughs> it's so but great. I, so I, I feel like this is a good opportunity to talk about Linus's speech a little bit because oh, wow. I think it's a beautiful speech. Um, but I was a little sort of, it was a little jarring. You bet it is. Because it is, uh, he just, he straight up just says Luke 2, 8, 14 from the King That's James right. translation of the Bible. Um, and it's, it's again, it's powerful. It's interesting. But it, it's, as a, as a Jewish person, it's a little yeah. alienating. Yeah. Uh, and it was, and it's interesting. I mean, CBS pushed back on it. As you mentioned, he had to really fight for it. The animator, the director, the producer, everyone was like, let's yeah. just not do this. Yeah. But he did it, and, and I don't think he did it, obviously he didn't do it maliciously, and I don't think he was trying to force religion on people. But I think he was really trying to hone in on what the essence of Christmas is. Yeah. Or what it should be. You know what I mean? This idea of not, and I mean, and he shits all over like capitalism and how sure. it's been turned into a, you know, into a holiday of buying things and, and in his own subversive way is really pushing back on what people, what's only been like, you know, we've doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on by this point. But back then he was seeing something and he was like, we shouldn't be doing mm-hmm. it like this. And Linus's character being very eloquent, being very philosophical, being a person who's sort of very spiritual and mindful of these things. Uh, it's really powerful. It's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, again, I'm, I'm curious as to sort of what you think that the takeaway was supposed to be from that. Well, I I agree with your articulation of it. It is, it is Linus reminding us that right. this is the holiday about the birth of our Savior. <laughs> right, right. And that's worth reminding people about. Right. And... I had the same reaction you did as a little Jewish kid. When I saw that, I found it. And of course, like I said, I was at an Episcopalian private Mm -hmm. school. I was one of maybe four Jewish kids Mm -hmm. in the school. I was best friends with one of maybe two black kids in the school. We were all kind of on the outs in our own way. But, um, but I had to constantly deal with the presence, with the oppressive presence of Christianity in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, and, I have obviously changed substantially, but at the time it felt like, oh God, here it is again. Here it is making me feel like the other. Right. You know? And I only came to understand later that this was, you know, Schultz was a deeply religious man, but he was also mm-hmm. deeply cynical about organized religion. Interesting. And, Paradoxal. And I can, I can I can relate to that. Which is why, by the way, <laughs> I think you'd be hard pressed to find scenes in Peanuts of characters in church. Mm-hmm. They don't go to church. Mm-hmm. They talk about having gone to church. They talk about praying. I will tell you a great story in a second, which you just reminded me of. Um, they do talk about the Bible, right. but there is none of that sort of veggie tales, like here's a lesson we can <laughs> right, learn right, about right. from the life of Jesus. There is. It doesn't go that way. You have young kids? I have a 21-year-old kid. Oh. Why? 
just because when you watch that VeggieTales and you think you're just turning on something yeah. nice about talking yeah. vegetables and you realize they're recreating like Jonah and the yeah. whale. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I, would, I would argue actually VeggieTales is really good. I don't want to knock VeggieTales because it's extremely well I've made. I've never, never seen any. But it is overtly Christian. Okay. Cartoon about vegetables. It's like some like the, the, That's what it does. Oh, man. I don't want to talk about VeggieTales too much. But like it's <laughs> it's like it, it, they're the ones on, nickel. They're the the ones on Netflix. Oh. That – are actually done by the guy who did uh, Axe Cop. I don't know if that means anything to anybody. Okay. I've, yes, but I've heard of it. Those are not religious at all. So you get indoctrinated into this world yeah, of Bob friends. and Larry. The, yeah, that's uh, right. The talking. <laughs> the pirates who don't do anything. Yeah, yeah. well, those are, those guys are f- so right. So the first ones are just about how, you know, sometimes vegetables play baseball in the supermarket. The <laughs> It's really good, Phil. You got to check it out. Hey, now I'm into it. If you get into VeggieTales, then you start watching the movies. And the movies are like Noah's Ark. Yes. And they're talking yeah. about God and Jesus. Yeah. They're vegetables. And, and my, I mean, not to, my son is like, so I'm Jewish. My wife is half Jewish, half uh, Catholic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did that. <laughs> <laughs> and somehow my, somehow my son has decided he's like Catholic. Oh, neat. He is a, yes. Wow. He is a, he is a Jesus loving. He? he is seven. Wow. And and the presence of God and Jesus just makes sense to him. It's just, it just ties it all together in a way he's like, before he just couldn't understand how the earth could exist. Right. If someone didn't create it. Yeah. So it all made sense. It's to logical him. if you want to get on that wavelength. Do you know what I mean? It does. Like, yeah, there's We just think that's religion. There's I mean, something like, there. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so he found like veggie when we turn around. Like, <laughs> yeah. They're speaking my language. Yeah. <laughs> these vegetables know what they're talking they know about. what's what. <laughs> Give me more. Shoot some of these vegetables. Right. That's and so now, great. Vegetables and now you won't eat vegetables. That's so great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's oh, what I was going to yeah, say. Sorry, so I was yes, reading yeah. a really – there's a famous – there's lots and lots of famous peanut strips, which I can recite from memory. Sure. But, but one of the more famous strips of the 1960s was this strip where Sally comes home from school and she's very um, – I this is a podcast, so I can't just act this. Yeah. She's extremely circumspect and anxious. And she says to Charlie Brown, like, psst. And they go, and they go to a room where they know they won't be overheard. Mm-hmm. And it is a Sunday strip. So it takes them eight panels to get to this quiet room. And <laughs> they crouch behind the sofa. And the final panel, Sally whispers to Charlie Brown, we prayed in school today. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Which is great. Now, I read an interview with oh, Schultz. That's fantastic. There were people who took entirely different messages from this. Mm. Pro-school prayer people thought that this was endorsing it. Uh-huh. Anti-school prayer yeah. people thought that it was condemning it. Sure. And so they asked Schultz if they could reprint this in their newsletters. Both factions. And he was fine. And he said no to both. And the (laughs) interviewer asked him, how do you feel about it? He says, school prayer? No, not a chance. This is a deeply religious man. Said, we shouldn't be having that in our schools. Schools are for something else entirely. And who's doing the leading of the prayer? Is it a Mormon or a Methodist or a Catholic? What are we doing? And so it's very interesting. It just, what I took away from that is, yes, he's a deeply religious man, but for him, religious is, religion is intensely personal. Yeah. There's, there's something very sort of that, this sort of how I feel about religion on mass in yeah. general is if it gives you a compass and it gives you, it helps you get out of bed in the morning, makes you feel better about yourself. Um, more power to you. Yeah. I think it's Schultz would agree with that. the indoctrination of other yeah. people into it and turning it into 
in his own way, he, this is like the Christmas episode where you're turning it into something to sell. You're turning yeah. it into a commodity. You're commodifying spirituality, which in and of itself defeats the purpose. Yeah. Like and I think that's what I'm saying. That's, I think yeah. that's well articulated. And yeah. I think that's something Schultz would really agree with as, yeah. as it was an intentionally religious man from, you know, birth to death, like cared a lot about and had did a series of cartoons. They're really worth seeking out. You know, we always think about Schultz's drawing style in terms of the peanuts characters. He actually did a series of strips that were for church newsletters about teenagers and there are collections of these. They aren't collected in any of the Peanuts uh, compilations, but if you seek them out, it's him talking about the lives of teenagers. And these are uh, teenagers talking about like they're, you know, going to church and youth group and choir and so forth. Mm-hmm. But it's the lives of teenagers through Schultz's lens, which I think is very really interesting. interesting. So, he, and he would give these strips away, you know, mm-hmm. for church newsletters and stuff. Like he cared a lot about his church and he had a personal relationship, as huh. they like to say. Um, Where was he uh, from? Uh, he, I think he's from Minnesota. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, and then spent most of his life in, um, uh, Santa Rosa, California, where he built an ice rink, which is Snoopy's home ice, Mm -hmm. which you can go visit. And now where the Charles Schultz museum is, which you should absolutely go visit Mm -hmm. because they have a life-size psychiatric help booth that you can take a selfie in. Psychiatric help. Five Five cents in the military. I mean, he was, yeah, he's, he's he's very impressive. Yeah. Very impressive person. What do you take from that? Psychiatric help, the psychiatric help booth. Well, here's what he said. Yeah. What he said was, it was just a joke about a lemonade stand. Mm -hmm. Like, he noticed Uh that, like, kids were selling lemonade, and he thought, what's another funny thing a kid could sell? And, of course, in the 70s, you know, we were thinking a lot about psychiatry and self-help and therapy and so forth. So he thought, wouldn't it be funny? Also, that Lucy, the worst person to give advice. She's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. And how many great gags did they get from, like, her sitting down with it says the doctor is in. And so, yeah. But – isn't it funny? Like you, you were talking about Lucy and the football, pulling the football away from Charlie Brown. I think another thing that makes this a great and enduring work of art is how many powerful images from that strip are still part of our vernacular. Mm-hmm. That Lucy and the football is something we all talk about and think mm-hmm. about, and the strip hasn't existed for twenty years. Yeah. Snoopy on that on his dog. Yeah. yeah, the security blanket. Yeah. Security nice. blanket yeah. is a term that has entered the American vernacular Absolutely. because of Charles Schultz. And there are countless other examples. You, I mean, it, these things are brought up in writer's rooms all the time. Yeah. You know, it's Lucy and the football. It's yeah. the security blanket. You, you hear these things all the time. It's, yeah, you're right. I have another question. I have one too. Okay. I'll, I'll follow you. Well, mine is total, total. Is it a tangent? The, the, uh, tangent. It's not even a tangent. It's just another thing about peanuts. What do you think about the fact that, like, the pet has a pet? <laughs> oh, well, that isn't, well, that isn't the pet's pet. That's a friend. That's Woodstock, Woodstock's, Woodstock's a friend? friend? Yeah. So talk to me about Woodstock. <laughs> Who wasn't named until pretty deep no, into the run. No, well, and, and Schultz said he only named, like, Woodstock Woodstock because he thought it would be funny because Woodstock was in the news. Right, right, right. It wasn't supposed to say anything. About like hippies or anything. It was just he thought it would but be funny. It did in in its own way kind of rebrand the comic as hippie friendly. You bet it did. Yeah. So that's an interesting kind of move to me. I didn't realize Snoopy that they were just friends. Yeah. You know, I mean I I'm like deeply uncomfortable <laughs> with the um have you seen the new Facebook ad for the new uh, portal? No. <laughs> the new portal where it's where it's um Gonzo talking to one of the chickens in the portal. Oh, yeah. And Gonzo's like, you hang up. And the chicken's like, blah, blah, blah. And Gonzo's like, this is nice. I'm deeply uncomfortable with that relationship. 
Like I love it. I, like that is not Great. Miss Piggy and Kermit. Yeah, they yeah. both talk. They both wear clothes and have jobs. Yeah. That chicken's a chicken. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah, no, that's so, weird. Yeah. It's weird. So I guess if Woods, if Snoopy, oh, well, they're, stuck they're little his, friends. Then I guess neither talk. No, they. Well, the bird goes. You know, makes cheeping noise. <laughs> yeah, Woodstock doesn't say anything. But Woodstock doesn't talk. Yeah. Snoopy's it's, laugh is fucking great, by the it's way. Fant- and you know who does it is Lee Mendelson, the animator. Oh, really? Yeah. His laugh he is does, fantastic. And he does the wah! He so does all the little Snoopy noises. Let's do it the right way and talk about Snoopy. If you, yeah, you want to yeah, I just, I just okay. rewind real quick just back to the security blanket because there's something that I found out that I think is kind of great, which is during the speech that Linus gives at the end of the yeah. Christmas special, uh, who is well known to be dependent on a security blanket, actually lets go of it when he recites the words, oh. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of grace. Joy. Wow, I didn't know that. I like that. Oh, which is just a it's nice like lovely. It's really nice. Yeah. So yes, I, I like Linus. That. Linus is great. Yeah, I have I have I mean I love all these characters. I do. I like like deeply love all of them. Um all right. Snoopy. Except yeah. not really Snoopy. Uh, <laughs> Snoopy's great, but he's you kind know, of a prankster. He's well, kind you of know, like, you could probably you know that Snoopy. test, the superhero test where you you hey. can learn a lot hey. from someone yeah. about whether they would choose flying or invisibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could probably apply the same test to who your favorite Peanuts character is. I and I would say if somebody says their favorite character is Snoopy, they are a sociopath. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I agree with that. I do. Here's something yeah. that I did like about Snoopy yeah. uh, in the, in the two, in the two animated TV things. Uh, that he is always kind of giving it to, to Lucy. Yeah. Like he doesn't, she's always, you know, making everyone feel like shit. And Snoopy is always the one that's coming out. That's her, right. Which I think is great. Um, and, and he is sort of, I, I mean, I don't know if he's, he's not really the Scooby-Doo of this gang, but he is definitely sort of the, 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 the biggest leap is that there's a dog that can talk and play baseball and, play baseball. and write short stories. <laughs> yeah. Snoopy, yeah. All those things. The big difference between Snoopy and Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Is. Other than they're very different. And I watched a lot of Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Scooby-Doo is the lowest status character in that show. Yes. Except maybe Shaggy. Yeah. They're both like very low status. Snoopy's the highest status character yeah. in Peanuts. And you're the example you just brought up, Phil, is is a perfect example. Snoopy is Charlie's bodyguard. Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. He's, he is the one who looks out for Charlie. Sometimes. He's, so, yeah. He also antagonizes him about supper and about, you know, and makes fun of him and so forth. He is the Joker in the deck. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what's so exciting about mm-hmm. Snoopy as a character. And it is really what quite crazy that it. this ended yeah. up happening to Charlie Brown's dog. Mm-hmm. You know, the Charlie Brown's dogs, you know, because the strip is very grounded in it a is. lot of other ways. That's why you know? he's such a. And yeah, yeah. And so characters have imaginations, but those imaginations don't come to life. Yeah. I think I'm right about this, that Snoopy is the only one whose flights of fancy actually take form in the strip. It you know? gives him a, a, a sort of a, a bird's eye view on the whole world. Like he's very much sort of, I don't know if he's the audience, but he's certainly the narrator. He's yeah. certainly the one who is seeing all the pieces. Yeah. Um, which gives him the, the, I guess, the flexibility to be able to do these sort of surreal journeys yeah. into his imagination. Um, because he's, uh, to Kenny's point, is kind of above everybody else. Yeah. He's almost able to see everything. It is really interesting. And, and, and it's kind of the only way you could do that is 
the through room a dog. a dog. Yeah, but like it's just so audacious. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I know that this is not atypical of comic strip mm-hmm. sensibilities, right? But you have a strip that up to this point was really trying to really talk about the day-to-day lives of kids. Mm-hmm. They go to school, they play baseball, and then all of a sudden you have a dog with a Van Gogh in his doghouse right. and hmm. a hi-fi system and, you know, who writes short stories and submits <laughs> them to magazines. And, you know, it's just... He's so cool. He kind of is. And, and you know, That's Schultz insane. himself cool. said that he yeah. felt like as the strip wore on, particularly as it goes from the 70s to the 80s, which, by the way, is to me when the creative spark starts to wane a bit. <laughs> but he said he almost had to sort of jerk the leash back mm. on Snoopy because Snoopy was in danger of completely taking over the strip. Interesting. And some of my least favorite strips are the ones about Snoopy's siblings, you know, and him going to Needles, California to see his, mm-hmm. you know, his brother and so forth. It just gets kind of boring. Um, and beside the point. And beside the point, yeah. because I want to be in that neighborhood yeah. with those kids. It's and a garnish. Yeah, Snoopy. exactly. Yes. Yes. Exactly. That's a well said. But I yeah. think, uh, but I, I mean, I got the weirdest thing to say about Snoopy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just pulled up his Wikipedia and I'm looking at a picture of him. <laughs> hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Snoopy reads to me as handsome. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I like. I look I mean, at her. I'm like, this sure. is this is like a, a good looking dog. He's in, this, he is. He's bl- he's totally white with like some black ears, yeah. black nose. Yeah. And the reason he reads to me as handsome is because he's so cool. He's yes. like the Fonz. Yeah. You yes. know? It's he's the just Fonz. like the it's Fonz. Just like the fun, it is just like how the Fonz took over he's Happy Days. He's cool. There yeah. is something – it's it, it's it's true what you're saying about how um, – it reminds me a little bit about how um, – I mean, look at his posture. He's awesome. He's, he's awesome. He's posture. He's the guy, guy. He stands up straight. He's a good boy. Yeah, it's a good boy right but, there. But I'll, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll say this. Uh, it's It's – it's like the Simpsons, right? So early days of the Simpsons. That's right, Bart. Bart Simpson right. starts to swallow the show because they think, oh, it's a show for kids. Yeah. And then they they realize quickly, Homer's the show. Yeah. I mean, Homer's our lead. Um, and and because Bart's pretty narrow, like there's just not that much you can kind of do with him. Right. Um, and I think the same is sort of can be said for Snoopy. A yeah, bit, a transgressive which is, kid is not as interesting as a transgressive adult. It's right. right? And, yeah. and, and And it's just – and the, the 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 patriarch sort of of the family. Yeah. Just like, there's just a lot more there. Snoopy, uh, to your point, is best when he's just there to articulate something or to shine a light on something or to take the piss out of somebody. Yeah. Like, I think that that's. Yeah. But then again, I mean, I know we're knocking, but Snoopy's awesome. Snoopy's I mean, great. Snoopy's I'm, I'm great. Not, I'm not, One of my favorite strips. There's a sequence from the 70s where Snoopy 
can do impressions. Okay, sure. And Snoopy like can kind of do an impression of Lucy or make himself look exactly uh-huh. like Charlie Brown. So or- shapeshifting. <laughs> yes, shapeshifting. <laughs> shapeshifting. And one of the funniest visual gags is Lucy getting enraged when Snoopy does a Lucy impression. And his ears <laughs> kind of bunch up like her oh, hair. That's great. And he makes it and it's just Oh my God! To have yeah. a character that, that that's that elastic oh, it's, is it's exhilarating. Yeah, yeah. It's so much fun. You Which know? Schultz obviously recognized. Yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty amazing. He also looks. Looking at that picture made me think of the RCA dog. Oh yeah, with the the yeah. you know the the the, 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 the his master's thing. voice. Yeah, his master's voice. Yeah, yeah. some other handsome dog. It's, uh, it's a white dog. It's a white dog with, white with dog. black ears. And, no, I yeah. see this dog. This, he's all right. He's he's he's, he's cool. <laughs> <laughs> No Snoopy. Anyway, I love no this. Snoopy. I love, I love this. Type. I yeah, am. I get Pop it. Pop culture dog yeah. throwdown. <laughs> <laughs> it's also so. I I feel like we can't talk about penis without kind of talking about some other comic strips sure. as well that were sort of at the time, right? You had, I mean, I guess you had sort of like Family Circus and Garfield yeah. and those sort of things that played. Now the the comic that that really spoke to me when I was a kid was Calvin and Hobbes. Well, this is, I'm glad you're bringing this up because okay. Calvin and Hobbes this is a real is, smackdown, right? Well, I mean, yeah. a lot of people believe that, that Calvin and Hobbes doesn't exist without pe- peanuts, yeah. obviously. Sure. Yeah. And I'm, not, a, I'm not sitting here saying the oasis to peanuts beetles. Ooh, oh, they're going to say the peanuts is blur, blur oh, and oasis, but oh. I'm sure that too. I, I mean, I was I, being a jerk. Yeah, I know you, but <laughs> I, I, I like that you said, yeah, I know you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this. I, I'm not, I, first of all, I'm not pitting them against each other. This is about, when I was reading comics yeah. and why Calvin and Hobbes spoke to me as much as it did. Um, but I think it does tap in a little bit to, um, it's a little bit more that Calvin was a kid of around my age or a little younger yeah. than me. So it kind of tapped into something that I imagine, you know, you're looking at peanuts when it hits That's you. Right. At a certain, so it, it really is just a timing thing, less which is better or worse. Um, <clears throat> they do have very strong similarities. Yeah. Um, the parents obviously figure more prominently. So you do have adults in, in Calvin and Hobbes, but I mean, Hobbes is literally a toy that comes to life, which is sort of similar to yeah. what, what, uh, Snoopy is obviously. And you have Calvin going on these journeys to space right. and that sort of stuff. It just, it felt a little bit, and I, forgive me for saying this, but cooler. I think that I was just sort of like peanuts isn't as cool, oh, yeah. but now I look at this and I actually think that peanuts has way more going on in it. Calvin and Hobbes is really just kind of a boy and his and his best friend, his best imaginary friend. It's a yeah. relatively simple story. Um, and, and a very kind of um, a small cast of characters. Yeah. What's great about Peanuts, and, and I think it actually kind of connects to The Simpsons a little bit too, which is that Peanuts has a pretty deep bench of characters, but it never feels overwhelming. It never yeah. feels like there's too many characters. Some could argue there might be too many characters on The Simpsons. Like that that universe is sort of... I would. Okay. That's fine. Uh, I wasn't saying I was, but there were people that I meant yeah. to make that. I, that, I that, that Springfield is brimming with maybe too much and that yeah. the world... Now again, it's done 26 seasons or however yeah. many, so like, sure. But I do love that that the world of Peanuts feels like there's just the kind of perfect amount of characters. Yeah, I think that, I mean, look, Calvin and Hobbes is amazing. And I kind of missed Calvin and Hobbes a little bit because Calvin and Hobbes was sort of peaking creatively like when I was in college. Right. And so I kind of feel like I caught up with it later when my own son like Mm -hmm. wanted to, you know, love those comics and so forth. I mean, I think Bill Waters would be the first to say that Peanuts was a massive influence on him. It's also an interesting study in contrast because when Calvin has his sort of spaceman spiff flights of fancy, Waterson draws them. 
And it's these almost fetishized yeah, yeah. tableaus that are so beautiful and so fully realized. Flash Gordon. And, it's like yeah, Flash Gordon, exactly. And, and and something that I don't think Schultz would ever really do. You know, like yeah. when you see, you know, when you see um, Snoopy pretending to be a flying ace, he's sitting on a doghouse. Yeah. You know, he's not sitting on an actual stop with camel. <laughs> so, but I think you're also kind of pinpointing like the center of Calvin and Hobbes is Calvin and Hobbes. And you can't really do a Calvin and Hobbes strip without Calvin in it. Right. Whereas there are plenty of peanut strips in which Charlie Brown doesn't appear. Right. You know, we go off and it's almost like more of an ensemble comedy mm-hmm. in that we can go off and tell stories about Linus and Lucy, or sure. we can go off and tell stories about Peppermint Patty and Marcy. Um, and the, the universe steadily expanded, but in a very limited way. I don't think, I mean, I've seen inventories of all the Peanuts characters and it's nowhere near in 50 years mm-hmm. what the Simpsons got to in five or 10. Not even close. Um, it was much more rigorous, I think, in hewing to like a central ensemble. It also didn't need to feed a beast like the Simpsons did. You yeah, know what I mean, like that's it true. It, that's it, true. It, it's, it was lucky in that respect. Ish. Well, wait a minute. I mean, seven strips a week. Seven strips a week. Like you could, I but mean, that's four panels. I mean, yeah, the Simpsons had to write an entire true. episode. I guess of that's true. Yeah, I guess you're. I guess you're right. But I, yeah, but I like tomato. I, tomato. Yeah. They're both they're, they're both hard jobs. Hard jobs. They're both. Yeah, I, I think more than anything, what I'm saying is that that Schultz really sort of understood the, and it sort of taps into what you were saying about rules, but the, the limitations, right? Yeah, that's he right. wanted the box. He yeah. didn't want to go out and make fucking movies and make television shows. He didn't want to right. do that with it. Well, he did. Um, well, but he didn't, right? He didn't. Did he write the the? He, TV no, he things? did. No, he did. Okay, but he was extremely cautious yeah. about all right. those things. Fair you enough. know, yeah. he was approached. It's interesting, actually. The first animated, I think I'm going to get this right. The first animated Peanuts thing was a commercial for Ford, an internal like. Uh, not even a. It was like a um, for Ford Motor Company. Okay. It was like a an, an industrial hmm. with the Peanuts characters that he made for Ford Motor Company, and that's where, <clears throat> excuse me, where he met Melendez and Mendelssohn, who were the team who later, you know, convinced him to do the special for CBS. And huh. at the time, a a primetime animated special was an extremely weird thing. Um, I think the Flintstones is roughly contemporaneous, so animated mm-hmm. primetime comedy wasn't completely unusual right. but trying to bring the peanuts characters to prime time for a special no one thought it was going to be a success there's a difference because the flintstones really was aimed at adults yes that's right and and peanuts <clears throat> although you know obviously appreciated by adults, yeah. it was really aimed at children yeah so. well i think there's yeah. also i mean it should be said too so you know they decide to do this this christmas special but i mean they don't make it easy for themselves you know i mean he he made a very you know the, the it's a big swing. Yes. I mean, CBS was convinced it was going to flop. That's right. They, they did not think it was going to work. And now, of course, it's it's a perennial classic yeah. that's played every Christmas. But it's it's it just goes to show that he decided to do this thing, but he did it by his own rules. He, did, he did it, it by, by his, his own, own rules. And that's yeah. I mean, that's what's so remarkable. It wasn't just. I mean, yes, the story is. I mean, there there are long stretches of dialogue that are drawn from strips, but yeah. there are long stretches that are not. Yeah. So there's a lot of writing. It was the first time he'd ever written something for the screen. Yeah. And you're right. There's a very unusual digression uh, with Linus reciting some Bible verses sure. as the story slams to all. musical interludes. Like, well, this is the other of, thing. There's times when there's not even Dave Bru- Dave Brubeck. Dave yeah. Grusin. Yeah, Dave Grusin. Jazz score. Yeah. Adult jazz. It wasn't children's music. Yeah. So that was a big swing, too. And again, it happened in the weirdest way. It was like this was a musician that he liked. Yeah. 
you know? And it was the same thing when he agreed to do um, the Broadway play, You're mm-hmm. a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Like, he was approached by a couple of writers who sort of wrote it on spec and said, we don't really have permission, but, but we read the play. Yeah. And he read and he liked it. And so he, like, helped them polish the script. And all of a sudden, and it's the most performed, I think, let me think about this. It's, Other than Bye Bye Birdie, I think it is the most performed school play. Yeah, it's, yeah um, it, it, it has been. Yeah. Um, in Yeah, it's like the, by decades. I weirdly happen to know about this uh, <laughs> because of a problem. Yeah. But uh, it is one of the most performed. Yeah, and I, performed a, I performed a monologue for him once. Yeah, and the songs are great. I mean, mm-hmm. so it's remarkable. This is a guy who kind of very carefully hopscotched medium to medium with these characters and succeeded in all of them. And and never had and I I hate using this term, but never to sell out. Like he never. Well, this is this. You know what I mean? Question, I, I, you know. I feel like he never lost his integrity of what he wanted to do with it. It seems to me. Now, listen. What happened in the in the years after he passed away, and what yeah. you know, the 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 penis movie that Kenny's kids won't, won't go and see, see, it. see I won't and, see it and neither will it, it's yeah. it's unfortunate because it well, does feel like it's now been sort of bastardized. Well, you know, I read an interview with Schultz in the seventies where the interviewer pressed him kind of hard on the metropolitan life of it all. You know, and the fact that that not just that he had licensed these characters to an insurance company and that also, you know, there was Peanuts apparel and Peanuts lunchboxes and Peanuts toys and so forth. And so he said – so the interviewer was sort of pressing him and saying, Mm -hmm. is there a danger of the script – of the strip becoming overly commercialized? And Schultz's response I found very interesting. He said, is the strip still good? (laughs) He said, if the strip is getting bad, then we have a conversation. Mm -hmm. But he said – the strip is still good. I still do it seven days a week, and I still think it's really, really good. Mm. If it ever starts to wane in quality, then we can talk about whether commercialization is hurting the uh, – what do they call yeah. it? Like whatever the – Je ne sais quoi. There you go. <laughs> there's, there's – but I mean the, the MetLife thing – I mean, if if anything, in my brain, it's just kind of a weird association. Like, I'm just like, why did yeah. you – why insurance? Yeah, I know. Why insurance? Why? But – but that being said, I mean, merchandising your your comic strip, I think it's a little unfair to to ask him not to do. Well, Watterson didn't. I mean, Bill Watterson never did, did it. And it's interesting in this same interview. There's a point where, again, this interview is pressing him and saying, "Is it just about the money? Is it yeah. just about the money?" And the interviewer actually, Schultz asks the interviewer to turn off the tape recorder, and in brackets it says, "Schultz talks about all the uh, philanthropy he does." Mm. And so I'm like, yeah. All right. You know what? Yeah. His, he's made a billion dollars. His children are set for life and so forth. I'll bet he gave lots and lots right. of money to charities that Put he cared about yeah. and so forth. It's like, all right, listen, yeah. it's, you know, Pete Townsend said this when he licensed I Can I Can See for Miles to CSI? Avis or something. <laughs> yeah, it was, and it yeah. was I Can Drive for Miles and Miles. Yes, and he yes, said, yes. it's my fucking song. And I didn't like that attitude yeah. because I feel like I Can See for Miles, which is, I think, probably my favorite song. Really? I don't like that it's on a commercial, but I understand that he doesn't believe it belongs to anybody but him. Take it in a different direction. Cause I do think this is an interesting conversation to have. It doesn't belong to you. Obviously it belongs to B Townsend, but it belongs to the who. Um, and peanuts doesn't belong to you or me or anybody else. It belongs to Charles Schultz. That I think is clear. And he wants to license it. He yeah. wants to merchandise all power to him. The thing that it does do is I think in the mind of the public, it cheapens it to some extent. I agree. So I think when you you just said it about Calvin and Hobbes, like a Calvin and Hobbes fan can say, "Well, we never had our characters, you know, selling insurance." Now it's not really about the argument; it's more about like what that does in your mind when it comes to the seriousness 
and the artistic integrity of this product. I'll make a weird comparison, as I do. (laughs) The thing that this reminds me of a little bit is the cultural and critical uh, reassessment of Steven Spielberg that happened in the late 90s, early 2000s, where people stopped thinking he was just a popcorn director who also made Schindler's List and started realizing that, no, actually, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark is a perfect movie. Actually, Close Encounters is a perfect movie. Right. No, actually, Jurassic Park is even like a perfect movie for some not me. But the, <laughs> but this idea that, this, this idea that I think until, um, I think until around 2000, right around, yeah. right around this time when he, you know, early 2000s when he started like branching out and making more serious movies, people, Thought he was, he was emblematic of the death of Hollywood. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You know, emblematic yeah. of of all the bad things because he licenses stuff to McDonald's because they merchandised everything and all of those things. And you know, look, that isn't a completely invalid view. Mm-hmm. But I think that we've gotten to a point where we can move past that, and I think we're doing that in the podcast. Actually, I think we're we're looking at the comic. Uh, for the, in, in the context of these four panels, I think that's what Schultz would want. And I think that uh, Schultz would want, I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's his point, right? Go back to the art. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Like go back to the art, like forget like the pop culture phenomenon and go back to the art. And I like what you're saying about like Raiders of the Lost Ark. You just go back to the text. It is unimpeachably a great movie. Mm-hmm. You just cannot argue with the greatness of that movie. It is great. Yeah. And what and you cannot say that the guy who made that film is not a great filmmaker. Oh, great artist. Great filmmaker, yeah, yeah. great artist. And I think we do sometimes tend I don't know. I feel like I'm about to say a sentence that I'm not sure is true anymore. But <laughs> never because, happens on the spot. Well, no, before. because look, I think that there's been a weird sort of democratization of artistic appreciation. So you're allowed to be passionate about anything. Like when I was a kid, like if you were, you know, I mean, when I was in college, if you were super passionate about Bo Diddley, which I was, mm-hmm. you were that was extremely weird, and it was hard to put your hands on <laughs> Bo Diddley albums. Mm-hmm. Like that was a hard thing to do. Now you have access to the entire sweep of recorded art history. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I think in some ways we sometimes underrate the, these titanic forces in popular culture. You know, I have often said about the Beatles, I don't own a Beatles album because to me, the Beatles are omnipresent. They're everywhere. They're like air. Mm-hmm. Saying you like the Beatles is saying like, yeah, I like oxygen. I'd like <laughs> to continue breathing oxygen. And my friend who is a music critic who is super passionate about the Beatles finds that fantastically objectionable because <laughs> 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 that dismisses the incredible artistry of those records and a concentrated creative output that happened, let's remember, happened inside of seven years yeah. that changed the world. Changed the world, changed prop. And so to dismiss it and just say, oh, it's like air, is to dismiss the artistry and to refuse to acknowledge the, the essential greatness and craft even that went into the making of those records. And so I think you can absolutely dismiss Peanuts and say, oh, it's that show that, you know, that's that comic strip that used to be popular and it's on TV once a year. But like, I, I don't want to skip past the fact that I think in a lot of ways without, um, nobody's going to like this. Uh oh. I love that. I, I feel I like in a lot of it. ways that, um, you know, in terms of uh, influences in contemporary comedy, I think in a lot of ways the contemporary sitcom doesn't exist without uh, Peanuts. I think that sure. the way in which mm-hmm. characters are constituted, pacing, joke craft, I think Peanuts made a certain type of mainstream 
in comedy with a whiff of intellectualism about it, okay. In the same way that Woody Allen, you know, a generation later or 15 years later or whatever, did the same thing, made a certain type of sensibility pop culture. There's, there are a few things I want to just unpack about what you said. Loved every moment of it. <laughs> uh, the Beatles being like air and Peanuts being like air, um, to me, like literally the highest compliment. You know, if you think about, if you think about like how, what that really means, that what a compliment to say this is so important to everyone's life that I don't even really have to think about it that much. Yeah. But what we're doing now and what people do with the Beatles is they actually do break it down and say, oh, there's a reason, for instance, that we breathe air, right? There's yeah. a reason why air, it's not yeah. just like this thing that's around that like we just put in and out our lungs. There's a reason it satiates us. So that's really cool. Um, I want to talk more about the uh, Peanuts birthing the sitcom, but yeah, I just two uh, very quick things sure. that I want to say. The first is um, I kind of hate that people have conflated the idea of art and commerce as yeah. much as they have. This idea that you can't be a great artist if you make money off of the thing that you made. Um, I think that that I just I don't know. That's There's definitely dissipated though. The last probably 10, 15 years. Sure. Yes. I would agree with you yeah. for sure. Um, there was, it certainly kind of hit its apex probably in the, the early to mid 2000s. I, mean, yeah. I know Scorsese is like trying to bring that. He's trying to take, right he's, now. he's trying to take down Marvel, yeah. but, um, I mean, he's, Hey, not, it's going to work, not, but it's totally going to work. <laughs> you laugh. But. You watch. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so that, that was sort of the first thing that I, cause yeah. I don't, I don't love that. They're not mutually exclusive. Like you That's can right. have these things. They can coexist um i just that that whole notion of selling out i think is horseshit and i, I think that uh it is horseshit it is because i think it's just like you should be, what is selling out well that but also like you should be we live in a world where money makes the world go round and i'm not sitting here saying that you know everyone should be you know making uh disgusting sums of money off of things or or, or using other people for whatever it is but i also think that that we should just sort of take note about the fact that if you make something that a lot of people love you should probably get to make a little bit of money I'll off of it make another point about that sure this is, i've never made this point in the podcast but right. i think about it a lot okay um obviously the point of making art is to uh have other people influenced yeah. by that art take in that yeah. art enjoy it or or, or uh, engage with it one way or another. Yeah. Engage with it or consume it or something along those lines. The lowest of the low, the people that I want to throw away forever and ever <laughs> are people who just make art for other artists. What is yeah. the – Or themselves. Well, I mean, themselves I get- is one thing. Like if you want to make art for yourself as a hobby, great. But there, – because there's no career yeah, in that. that. So yeah. go ahead. But if you're just making art to be cool yeah. among an art scene, what are you doing? doing what are you doing well with your life? isn't this interesting see we've kind of lurched into a discussion about what is the function of art and i have my own theory about <laughs> Please. that Please. which i think jibes with something you just said look i don't know where i heard read or it concocted this but i think the function of art is to talk is to make people feel less lonely and mm-hmm. to convey something about what it feels like to be alive mm-hmm. um I think that if you hear a song or you see a movie or you read a book that where that it chimes with you in some way, that it harmonizes with your own experience, it, the thing that you find moving or hilarious or transformative about that work of art, that is a communication between the artist and you that says, like, you're not alone out there, you know? And mm-hmm. that's what's beautiful about the kind of 
democratization of popular culture that has happened in the wake of the internet explosion is that they're let a thousand flowers bloom. Like everyone now has their little niche and their little piece of art that they can connect with. And that's beautiful. Um, on the other hand, we've lost the idea of like broadcasting doesn't really exist anymore. You know, when I, I can't, I don't know how to do this without sounding like obnoxious. Okay. I worked on one of the biggest sitcoms of all time. We two can dismiss them. the other two for a minute. We but did a whole friends, episode on it. We did. Oh yeah, you did do it. I haven't we heard your friends, friends episode. episode. Yeah. That's we so funny. love the show. Okay. <laughs> it is. Ex- I'm glad you like the show. Yeah. You do really like the show. Yeah. Well, okay. I, I, I worked on the pilot, helped out on the pilot and worked on, wrote for one season on the show and then got my own show in the air and foolishly left. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, when we made that show, we had no idea that this would be an enduring work that people would care about in 25 years. We were actually just making that show for each other. Mm-hmm. We were just in a room, not unlike this one, talking with other 25-year-olds about our shared experience. Trying to make each other laugh. Trying to make each other laugh yeah. and trying to make people go, oh, my God, that so happened to me. Yeah. And in the process of doing that, we kind of inadvertently birthed something that the 25-year-olds of today who were not born when we made the show still feel is authentic. Um, And I think that's kind of beautiful. Um, Will and Grace, not quite as successful a show, but it was a big deal in its day. I guess it's still on. I haven't watched the new one. Um, (laughs) It, it, It is. But we were very aware in making that show of the big megaphone that we wielded. 17 to 25 million people would watch that show every week. And we took that very seriously. And we thought a lot about, particularly because it was a show that was, you know, representing gay characters in a way that had not been really represented on, represented on American television before. We took that big megaphone very seriously. Those big megaphones don't exist in the same way that they used to. And even the large entertainments that momentarily unite us, like the Marvel movies that Scorsese is so eager to dismiss, <laughs> um, are weirdly corporatized. And I think that that's the part that he finds objectionable, that they aren't – they don't at least present as idiosyncratic personal statements that ultimately – you know, unite people yeah. in an understand. I get that critique. Okay. So to circle back to peanuts again, as a weird little eight, mm-hmm. nine, 10, 11, 12 year old reading these strips, this thing, which was titanically popular at the time, all my friends read it. I felt it was speaking uniquely to me. Mm-hmm. I felt that the experiences depicted in it were mine. I felt that Charles Schultz was somebody I never met and who had an upbringing entirely different from my own understood something about loneliness and the cruelty that people can wield and and alienation and sadness but also the joys that you can wring from a from a boring suburban life um that i felt and understood every day i you know i i you said something that was a there. Long monologue, uh, sorry. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> uh, two things that came to mind. The first was as you were talking about uh you know Scorsese and Marvel and all that. And and it, it made me look up the word auteur. Yeah. Because I think that we associate, I mean, the definition of it is a filmmaker whose personal influence and artistic control over a movie are so great that the filmmaker is regarded as the author of the film. That's not really what we think an auteur is. You know, mm. when, when we think of it, we think of, of people that make sort of niche art films for all intents and purposes. So, you know, you can be an auteur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Spielberg is an auteur. I mean, sure. or, 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 
fucking Marvel movies are made by auteurs. Yeah. So it's, it's just, it's interesting that we have this perspective on things. And, and that's why sort of, I don't have that perspective as you, as you okay. probably know. Like, uh, I, what do you mean? Well, no, I, 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 you don't define auteur in the way that other people do. No, no, no. I don't, I, I, I think I have the perspective that I think you just, you, you just, um, what's the word? Defined? Yeah, sure. Not <laughs> the one, not the one you ascribe to, you know, yeah. society at yes. large. Um, I think that you have to work within the par- parameters of what's get, what, what is given sure. to you. You have to play the hand that you're dealt. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen Joker. I probably yeah, never will it, see Joker. You but, will or won't? No, I have to see it. But you're like, gonna, you're gonna have to see it. I have to see, see it, too. but like, I have no time to see movies. Yeah. But at some point I will. Get a screener. But you know, you know, the, the way I feel not about the Marvel movies so much, the way I feel about the DC movies is as much as they miss all the time, they are people's attempts to tell genuine stories about their own experiences through these characters. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting. And I think there's some of that with Black Panther character, with uh, Marvel, like Black Panther, for yeah. instance. Yeah. Um, I feel very strongly about Spider-Man uh, Homecoming is, is that kind of thing yeah. too. Yeah. I think that. Yeah. And I think we're seeing that with Watchmen on HBO. I think yeah. there are ways to tell really interesting, honest, personal stories through the lens of these time-tested characters. Um, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I feel like the, the, the reason that I brought it up was because it does feel like, first of all, Charles Schultz is obviously an auteur. And in terms of how he, what he did and what he accomplished with, with the series. But, um, it, it just, it, it pains me when a little bit of, of Scorsese's argument of this, like, uh, I've defined cinema. Yeah. And these are the parameters yeah. with which you exist in. Um, and he, listen, he, more power to him. He's allowed to say and do whatever he wants and he can have his own definitions. Cause he really did define cinema, but like, like 40 years ago. <laughs> he's, I mean, listen, he's a grandpa. fucking genius. I'm not sitting. <laughs> I'm not saying he's wrong necessarily. I think what what I take umbrage with is with what you were just talking about, this idea of painting with too broad a brush and not being able to see any redeeming qualities or any artistic merit in big tentpole summer or just tentpole movies. I mean, I I think that's sort of the issue. And I think that it's, it's easy to do that. And listen, he's, he's, 77 years old. He just made a three and a half hour movie, uh, about the march towards death. Yes. Great. Uh, did you see it? I did. It's very good. It's, it's very long. I can't wait. Very long. But you know, one day, one day. My yeah. point, my point really with bringing it up was just to sort of, is to, we, we as a society need to recalibrate some of our definitions of art. And I think that it's a big, big canvas. No pun intended. I and got I think in, it's when, when I was in college, um, Jeff, the aforementioned Jeff Strauss and I uh, founded this uh, residential arts collective at Tufts, which just means it was a house of people who made <laughs> yeah, art. Sure. Okay. We started a film series and we would show films that were part of the Tufts University collection. And every once in a while, remember when you used to, maybe this isn't you guys, you'd have to rent a 16 millimeter print Go show it somewhere. Remember that? I mean, I heard of after that your time. We're this is, chess guys. This is how. <laughs> if you wanted to see Jean Luc Godard's Weekend, uh-huh. you yeah. had to rent get three hundred dollars, rent a print, rent a projector, oh, wow. get a screening room, and screen it. There was no other way to see Weekend awesome. when I was in college. I kind of wish that those days still existed. It was pretty honestly, cool because too, listen, because <laughs> when you were seeing Weekend, that was a pretty fucking big deal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, we had this film series that showed Weekend and Bergman's Persona. And even stuff like uh, The Big Sleep or It's a Wonderful Life or whatever. And classic films, art films and so forth. We decided one day 
that I think it was, gosh, this can't have been for, I don't know what it was for, but we wanted to show Stripes. <laughs> the Bill Murray movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I happen to think that's a pretty funny comedy. It's very funny. Mm-hmm. And it led to a big discussion at the Arts House oh, I can't wait about whether it was art or not. <laughs> and I was like, this is Kenny's of course it is. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh, man, of course it me, is. Yeah. And so there was a big discussion. Of course, this is college students. Sure. Who, that's, this is our stock and trade sitting around having discussions. There was a big discussion. Is this art or not? And my attitude was, of course it's fucking art. What are you talking about? And by the way, like, I'm not saying it's the same kind of a movie as Persona, but that doesn't mean it isn't worthwhile. It doesn't mean artistry didn't go into the making of it. Sure. But it is this thing that we're talking about, about being dismissive of our popular entertainments and thinking that they don't count as much. You know, it's interesting you cited the word auteur, which, of course, came into vogue because the French New Wave, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, cinephiles Mm -hmm. and film directors – they fetishized the popular entertainments of American movies mm-hmm. in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. They were the ones who lionized like Howard Hawks. Yeah. Right? These were movies that were popular movies of the day. And they, they isolated and pointed to the artistry that existed in every frame of those films and treated them like art. So it's sort of ironic. It is ironic. It's, it's very, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, listen, the term art is gigantic, right? Yeah. I mean, it can, it can mean whatever we want it to mean. Now, you know, most people don't think of say Simon says, for instance, as art or, you know, a, a, a any number of like subpar movies. All of our dumps. Be, all of our dumps. Yes, that no uh, one knows about that yet. That no one knows about yet. Film series coming soon. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Friday night dumps coming your way. Uh, but I, I do think that there's, I don't know. I just, I'm, I, we're in a very kind of weird place right now where you have these movies that are making just, just, gargantuan sums of money that are costing gargantuan sums of money. Uh, you know, that the mid-level movie is dying. Mm. Um, you know, but then you also look at television right now and the, 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 the breadth and the spectrum that exists on television is really exciting. So I don't know. I think we should just sort of, yeah. No, Kenny doesn't, you don't agree. I don't care about the breadth and the depth, <laughs> but, um, I just, he only know, works in it. It's, uh, but, but that's what I was going to say. If you don't think like stripes or yeah. Simon says, or anything, if you don't think that's art, Try making it, yeah. you know, yeah. just yeah. spend five minutes yeah. in that. I, I, the, the, the irony is like on this podcast, we shit on films all the time, mm-hmm. which is not like what I like to do, but it's just kind of what we've done. We're but, just covering a lot of movies that aren't. In, yeah. And we have this whole series called <laughs> yeah. the Friday Night Dumps, which yeah. are all these movies that got, that's going to be all these movies that got 25% or less in Rotten Tomatoes that we don't, Great. Wanna, <laughs> we don't want to like, yeah. but like for instance, yeah. We just did it for a couple weeks ago. We just did End of Days, which is a big Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that got 11%, 11%. on Rotten yeah. Tomatoes. It has, we both been, it. it has already been shit on by everybody. Sure. We love it. <laughs> That's the worst you never yeah. framed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. everything. Listen, same, same. I went to totally. see Wet Hot American Summer. Oh, the yeah. weekend it opened at a theater in Westwood. My then wife and I were the only people in the theater. I loved anything that the guys from the state did. Sure, sure. I would go see anything they did. And so now, of course, we, you know, lionize Wet Out American Summer as a comedy but classic. At the time. But at the time, it was yeah. the worst reviewed movie in America. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was considered like unserious. Like, how did this piece of trash find its way into cinemas? It's so wrong. And of course, I love every moment of that movie. Yeah. Well, we, I mean, that's part of this podcast is, <clears throat> yeah. is sort of finding is, is to, Giving love to movies that might not have had it at the yeah. time, movies that have now been deemed classics. Uh, the movie that we're going to do next week, I'm, I'm very interested to hear your, your thoughts on it because it, it falls into this, okay. this category. I uh, will talk about that in a second. But I, I do think that there is something very kind of um, 
I don't know. We 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 still love to tear things apart too much. Oh and yeah, that's kind of. I mean, Twitter is for the most part. We like to punch up. So at we? least here, yes, yes you yes, and I, table, like yes. for instance, we love like tearing apart like Cider House Rules. Yeah. Because Cider House Rules. Fuck that movie. Guy, did I even see that? It was made <laughs> without artistry. I mean, it was, it's an art, like it's technically, not, it, that's a movie it that's was made show. with artistry. Like technically, like yeah. technically speaking, but it's such a cynical movie. Just yeah. a deeply, deeply cynical movie that it needs to be torn apart and patronizing too yeah. like it's, it's wow. just it's 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 talking about like big issues like abortion and incest and any number of like you know abuse and all sorts yeah. of things and but doing it in such a patronizing and and interesting and, yeah was it was it oscar bait was that why it, was, it's, yes. got, it got best picture domination it did yeah, yeah. it was a harvey weinstein joint yeah Golly. i have no memory of that yeah. film no and, and you're better off for it yeah but um, should we talk about what we're doing next week? What, I'm are, what are we doing? We're doing week? Bowfinger next week. Oh, oh that's a great movie. That's and, a good pick. I like right? that. It's a good movie. We got uh, Hunter Covington and Stacey Trauber coming back for that. Great. Um, we're super excited to talk about it. It's a movie that I've been really excited to do at some point. And I and I think the reason I bring it up is baked into that movie is exactly what we're talking yeah. about, right? Yes, that's Which right. Which is they think he's a fucking joke, right? Right. And and it it has kind of that pseudo Ed Woody kind of vibe to it in the sense of a guy who's Trying to make something that he loves, Chubby Rain, everyone's favorite yeah. movie. Yes, um, <laughs> I'm excited to watch this again. And and you know you you have like uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s cameo. Yeah, and in in, I, I don't know what restaurant they're in, but it's it's mocking the sort of absurdity of Hollywood yeah. in its own way. But also doing oh, it in right. a really it's passionate got the guys way. That he picks up at the paint store who were talking mm-hmm. about the auteur theory, yeah. right? Yeah. Oh my god! Like the guys, yeah. like the crew becomes these these cinephiles they're yes. these high-minded oh artistic guys yeah. have you ever spoken to a spoken to anybody on yeah. a film set they are all yeah. cinephiles yeah. so it's just and it's it's filled with lots of of just i mean one of the funniest scenes i think perhaps ever put to film or one of them anyway is the scene where they make Eddie Murphy run across the, the freeway, freeway. Yeah. yeah i still and they remember say, don't that. worry they're gonna stop yeah. but they've told no yeah, one and no. it's just yeah it's that's just, gonna it's be great yeah. oh my god so that's that. great yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, look, I have found this doesn't necessarily apply to Peanuts because Peanuts is masterful. But I have found that in the back half of my uh, film viewing life, I am more drawn to things that are strange, broken, incomplete. Totally. You know, like everyone – like what's a good example? Like everyone – okay, this (laughs) – everyone dumped on Newsroom. The Aaron Sorkin thing. Oh, yeah. And there is plenty to dump on. There okay? is. <laughs> but I kind of loved the overreaching. I kind of loved the pretension. Talking to you the know, right guy here. You know, I kind of love you. I mean, the, I remember see warts and all. But, yeah, remember I mean, the, uh, the Soderbergh film, uh, Full Frontal? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody fucking hated that. Yeah. Thing. I love it. it. He's trying to do something. It may not work all the way through, but it's like he's undoubtedly an artist. He's got so much yeah. like filmmaking chops. Mm-hmm. Seeing people working at the limits of their powers is to me the most exciting thing there is. I people love someone taking a swing. Um, yeah. it's, uh, it's Magnolia. Not- Oh, I mean, like you're, Mag- now you're one of the greatest movies. Is that a ninety nine? Is that a ninety nine? Yeah. Have you guys done it yet? Not yet. No. Oh my god! Yeah. Yeah. You, I think you told me you're saving that. Yeah, yeah it is. It <laughs> is. Magnolia yeah. is a guy with t- with chops galore, yeah. way overreaching, yeah. and it's exciting. Yeah, I, think it's, he, I think he landed that jumbo. I, yeah, I, that's, yeah. but that's, that's what's exciting why, about that's it. Why Moulin Rouge is, is yeah. like one of my favorite movies. Me too. It's yeah. just like, me too. It's a jumbo. It's a fucking freight jumbo jet. Uh, and it lands. Yeah. And I feel the way about Magnolia. I'm totally with you. It's the reason that, like, 
of all these Apple shows, the only one I want to watch is the morning show because I like, I, really? I, I'm like, well, Interesting. I'm going to, this is such a mean thing to say. Like two of my f- fucking really good friends created for all mankind. So I will watch that too. Okay. But that's the only one that's not getting like, kind of like these, like, what the fuck is it reviews? But the morning show. Dickinson's weird, but I'm kind of into it. You did well. Everything I read about the morning show and Dickinson. What's the other one? C. C. C's crazy. Like these, like these, they're going to, they're overreaching. They're pushing it yeah. in a way, not in a, like, not in a, not in a edgy way. They're pushing it in a like, can you stuff all these clothes right. into this suitcase kind That's of exciting. way? Yeah. yeah. I mean, for all mankind, it just seems like a, you know, pretty straightforward, decent show, but I, it's interesting because what you're also sort of circling around is one of Kenny and I's favorite podcasts, which is Blank Check. And I don't know if you know watch Blank Check. You, you might really love it. Uh, it's basically about, uh, filmmakers that have early success and then oh. they get a series of blank checks to make films that they want to make. Uh. So, it's okay. you know it's so up your alley. It's that right up your alley. Right alley. But yeah. it's exactly that that idea of I just I respect a swing. Like even if you don't connect, even if you only get a triple or a double or whatever, I just respect or that you, you that you or strike out. You took the swing. I love messy, crazy masterpieces or just messy movies. I think the toys is insane That's and I love a it. Terrible movie. It's, it's terrible. not a terrible it's movie. Worst movie's ever it's made. a great movie. Almost maybe it's, the worst movie I've ever seen. It's a terrible, but it's a <laughs> wonderful, wonderful <laughs> movie. Such an awful and I love movie. it so fucking much. <laughs> but my point is. <laughs> but my you point, can't. I do. Tori Amos sings the. It's it's fucking insane. Uh, I just I res- and the fact that they- doesn't matter. I just love to your point. You know, yes, Moulin Rouge, yes, Magnolia, yes, the ones that connect the masterpieces. I'm obviously all for, but I'm also for ones that just don't work, but kind of do. And yeah, like Tomorrowland. No, oh, you don't like tomorrow. Do not like first tomorrow. 20 minutes are great. But I, yes, so much potential. It's so, but, it's, <laughs> but I think like you were talking about this from a forensic level, right? Like yeah. that's what I really love is like the forensics sure. of like, Oh, what were they thinking? Yeah, why did they, why? I mean, yeah. I think like I, I would rather watch Ishtar than like some other Elaine May movie because I would just, well, Mikey not, and Nikki, not to knock Elaine May. She's amazing. But the I point is I was Mikey just like, like, what the fuck I know. happened? Exciting. How did this thing come to be? And mm-hmm. you know, she's making a new movie. Right? I, I read that. Yeah. It's crazy. I'm praying that's true. I hope it's true too. Yeah. But it's, but, but all of this is just to say that, uh, I mean, to sort of get back to peanuts a little yes. bit as well, but just that, 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 I don't know. Recognizing what you have, recognizing the, the talent that you have and honing that skill and doing something unbelievably well and yeah so fuck it he sold some shit to MetLife like who cares I, I just I don't know I, I I respect the hell out of, of what he accomplished it is a titanic thing that he did yeah um, but really who cares <laughs> yeah. like like, yeah. I got, like a very I have a very strong view on that which is who cares like it doesn't affect, it, down to Charles Schultz's point himself but like it doesn't affect your your, no, it doesn't affect your enjoyment. It doesn't of the affect your enjoyment. Of and I would all. just encourage, I mean, the thing that's the lovely thing that has happened in the last couple of years is that Fanagraphics is put out a series of volumes yeah, you, you of the complete photo peanuts of, of your library. Have, yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's pretty, I showed you like one shelf of, <laughs> but yeah, I have like so many compilations and there's, you know, I mean, there's, there's no bad starting point. You start particularly anywhere in the fifties, sixties or seventies. You yeah, can you send me a couple that, that I, I really did want to read. It's just yeah. A, no, I was rereading a couple of them today. And it's like, it, they're just as great as they were then. The, the, 
there, I mean, it doesn't date. That's the remarkable thing about it. There's a couple of references. Like, I'm not sure people today know who Sam Snead is. I know who Sam Snead is. There you go. All right. Golfer, Golfer of course. Yep. There's a lot of references to Sam Snead in Peanuts. Yeah, I know Sam Snead. But it really like holds Sam up. Snead. It, it really holds up. And I it feel like timeless. in a weird way, it's like weirdly, for the reasons we're talking about, it is weirdly underrated. I, I would agree. I, I think that it's... I think it's very easy to pass judgment on peanuts is, is yeah. the, the sad reality of it. Yeah. And I mean, and I think if you, yeah. if you take the time uh, to either watch the two TV specials, which are obviously masterpieces and there's a reason why they're shown every year. Um, if you take the time to, to read one of these collected editions or what have you, you'll see how rich and, and phenomenal a thing yeah. it was. I think it's like air. And I mean uh, that, I mean that I yeah, think that yeah. and I mean that as the highest praise possible. I think I like it's underrated, but also like it's beyond rating. Yeah. You know, like it's it's beyond rating. That's it's just like at some point, like it just becomes like I can't think of I mean the Beatles is a really good example. I was gonna say Star Wars, but it's just not the same. Well there's There's something about things that are that that seep into you by osmosis that like you literally just know in your bones and you don't even really know why. Ironically, Friends is kind of like that at this point too. It's kind of yeah. The thing is though, like people, I I feel like younger people are always surprised just how good Friends is. Yeah, because they've always known about it, and I think people always assumed you know, six white people live in an apartment. How how great could it be? No, no, no. Friends is beyond, 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 beyond to me. The thing that is so great also about Peanuts is like, if you discover F Scott Fitzgerald or JD Salinger, there are four or five books and then Mm -hmm. you're done. There's really nothing else to read there. You could spend years reading through the amount of high quality. Even if you discount the last like 10 or 15 years of Peanuts where it started to resemble Nancy more than anything else, Nancy, Nancy the Ernie Bush like, Miller ah, or something. No, that's oh. Kathy, isn't that Kathy? Kathy, you're right. I no, it became, it became it became a little more bland <laughs> and generic in the later years. But yeah. even if you just look at the first thirty years of the strip, just the first thirty years, that's twelve thousand comic yeah, strips. I mean, you could. It's inexhaustible. It's inexhaustible, and you can you can even buy the editions, you know, through um, what do you call it? What is Comixology? Okay, you can buy them through Comixology. You could fill up your iPad with enough comedy to keep you busy for years. Guys, peanuts! Brilliant. Do you have to be? Because what I was thinking is like, I know I'm going to keep going, but I was thinking Uh. it's it's, you know, peanuts versus The Simpsons, that kind of thing. Twenty two minutes versus seven strips. It's seven distinct stories. It's seven unique ideas. It's seven things worth putting out into the world that's very very difficult it's and without anyone else doing it yeah and uh, no one else and it's funny if you read some of the they there was a time he he only reused a gag inadvertently twice in 50 years wow twice he inadvertently made the same joke twice two times in 50 years yeah. And unbelievable. That's, a, that's unbelievable. I do yeah. that on the podcast every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's good stuff, though. This was fun. This was great. This was Thanks, great. y'all. Thank oh, you my so God. I just – thank you for having me and thank you for letting me, like, oh my God. talk about this something was, this that I'm was so a intensely joy. passionate this about. This is – and again, the, Kenny and I said this before we got on mic, but, like, that's what this is for us. Like, it's just passion and we're just so thrilled that you love this thing as much as you do and that you're able to share it with I, us. I and, feel so fortunate. Yeah. No one else is doing this shit. No one else You know, it's like what It's like what Charles Schultz said about the bible verse he said to bill melendez bill melendez yeah, right he yeah. said because melendez was you know very uncomfortable that schultz said if we don't do it who, who will there you go that's how i feel about this <laughs> there you go. If well, we don't yeah. do it who, who will? will 
So next week we're doing Bowfinger with uh, with Hunter Covington. We don't do that. Who will? Um, you'll come back, right, for something <laughs> else? Okay, so I'll send you the list, and we'll, right. we'll do we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll do find a something movie. else. It'll be fantastic. So all thank right. you so much for being here. Doug. Thanks for having me. Y'all are awesome. So good. Thanks. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.